we have more in common than we think. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about the magnification of small differences. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. The African American Marketing Association is a nonprofit created to galvanize Black marketers across the world. We pride ourselves in providing resources and opportunities in order for our members to grow their career or their business. We've been established since 2019. We have over 400 members, a mix of professionals, freelancers, entrepreneurs, agency owners. Look, please support us by following our journey. Go to our website, aa-ma.org. That's aa-ma.org. Thank you. 150 years ago in my country, the United States, there was a civil war, a civil war that killed more people than any other war the United States has fought in. It was a time of enormous division, about as much as you can imagine. And yet, if you look in the newspapers or any other form of media today, not just in the United States, but around the world, division is the leading story. What happened? Where did it go and why did it come back? In this short rant, I want to talk about four factors that might be easy to overlook as we think about what happened and as we think about what's coming next. The four factors are industrialism, science, television, and the Soviet Union. So here we go. Industrialism. What started to happen in the 1880s was a simple equation. If you fell into line and you did what you were told, you could get rich, or at least richer than your parents. We built public schools to support industrialism. We built mass merchants and big stores and retailers and disposable products and plastic and on and on to support industrialism. Industrialism was this massive, massive gain in productivity that the labor of farmers, of people who worked in factories, of people who sat behind desks, of salespeople, of people who did transport, the labor of everybody was magnified by an amount that's very difficult for people to embrace today. If you decide to go into your backyard and do some yard work with a shovel, it will become very clear to you how weak each individual human is. If you try to get from here to any place you want to go by foot or by a horse, you're going to discover just how extraordinarily slow that is. And so this regime of industrialism shows up and it pays huge dividends to people who get in line, to people who communicate with each other, to people who are aligned because it enables trade. Trade enables even more productivity. Industrialism is at the core of our modern lives. It's also responsible in large measure for the climate challenge that we are all facing because industrialism was fueled by energy that was priced way lower than it should have been, which easily dances to the second idea, which is the miracles that were delivered by science. From 1880 until the present day, science has been on a tear, not just figuring out things like quantum mechanics or the way that cosmology works, but delivering on everyday magic. 
delivering on a regular basis medical breakthroughs that change lives, delivering technological advances, including Moore's Law and the magic of computers. With all of this forward motion, it's not easy to deny that science is real. It's not easy to show up and say, I don't want to deal with that. Because if you're in it, you get to benefit from it. The third one is television. Television was another miracle because it brought mass marketing to just about everyone. For the first time in human history, just about everyone was watching the same thing. That can't help but create a cultural touchstone, a center to the conversation, that when you run into a stranger and both of you saw the last episode of MASH last night, which was quite likely to be true in 1970-whatever, you had something real in common, a shared fictional reality, because we were seeing the same households and the same commercials and speaking the same language. And contrary to the first three, the scary one in the moment, the fourth one, the Soviet Union, starting later than the 1880s, well into the 1900s, the Soviet Union was the boogeyman, the evil enemy, the one that was the opposite of everything we sought to be. And the United States spent an enormous amount of time and money doing something you could call propaganda, making it clear to every single person in this culture and in the West and in Europe and in parts of the Southern Hemisphere that there were two sides. And one side was united, united in commerce, united in a version of freedom, united in science against a different side, a side that was going to make things worse. So there you have four things all stacked up in a row for over a hundred years that push culture to be together. And you can see where I'm going with this. All four of them have come into some sort of question. The first is industrialism. Productivity increases have slowed. At the same time, income inequality has dramatically, dramatically risen in an astonishing way. And what it means is that the vast majority of people are now apparently locked out of many of the promises that industrialism brought to the table. Then we see that the side effects of industrialism, things like pollution, things like income inequality, things like our climate problem, which had been previously swept under the rug or ignored, come to the fore, particularly since productivity and wages aren't rising the same way, which would have made people ignore some of the bad news. So in the face of all that, a bunch of people are saying, maybe I don't need your industrialism the way I used to. Couple that with the fact that as we work from home, as more people are able to be knowledge workers dealing with things like software, creative work, where being independent might be more valuable than doing what you're told, we end up with a different way of being in the world. Couple that with the demise of television. While television was going through its demise, most people didn't notice. 
because it all seems good. More channels to choose from. You can watch ESPN all day instead of waiting for Monday Night Football. And then the long tail. Oh, you can have a YouTube channel. Oh, you can have a podcast. But the end result of the dissolution of television is we go from TV shows that were regularly seen by 40, 50, 60 million people to TV shows that are considered hits when they have 3 million viewers, that nobody is watching something that everybody else is watching anymore. You can carve your own reality. You can build your own bubble. And then as news went from being something they did as a public service on television to a profit center, the people who sought to make a profit from news had a race to the bottom, race for clickbait, race to make people feel insecure so they would come back and look for more, figure out how to create these dopamine hits, positive and negative, to get people hooked on the narrative. Couple that with the end of the Soviet Union and until recent events in Ukraine, the Russian presence didn't really matter that much in world affairs. And all of a sudden, you need an enemy. You need an enemy if you're going to be in the news business. And so division is amplified. Add to that the fact that a lot of the easy stunts that science could pull off, a lot of the easy deliverables that technology can deliver have been delivered, but we don't yet have flying cars or teleportation or any of the other magic things that technology is going to have to deliver next. So with these things all happening at the same time, over just the last 20 years, the question really isn't, why is there so much division? It's why are we surprised that there is so much division? Because deep down, human beings, while we evolved to be in community, to be in culture, we also have evolved a culture that thrives on some level of division, on tribal division, on us versus them. You can't have insiders unless you have outsiders. So people who say that the world is flat, or people who say evolution can't be real because there are still apes. These people aren't stupid. If they actually thought it through and they wanted to know the truth, they would figure it out. It's that it is better in the moment for them emotionally, socially, culturally, to choose to be on a different side, even though there aren't two sides to issues like this, than it is to just do the work and understand what's really happening. And now we have a challenge. We have a challenge as we go forward because these four forces, they're not going to come back anytime soon in a really easy and obvious way. Instead, we have to grow up. We have to grow up as a culture and realize that we are still facing existential crises. The most urgent one right now being, as I've said before, the fact that we continue to destroy the only place we have to live. And in the midst of all that, we have a hobby. And our hobby is magnifying our small differences, magnifying the us versus them, because it either gives us pleasure or makes somebody a profit. So when you look at the division around us, it's easy to wring your hands. It's easy to believe 
that something has been slipped into the water by some nefarious being. But in fact, I think what you're seeing is humanity. And humanity has gotten through far tougher situations than this one. When I was growing up, the Cuban Missile Crisis came within 10 minutes of destroying the entire planet. There are ways forward, and we will find them probably one person at a time, one group at a time. We will always find things to divide us, Yankees versus Red Sox, whatever it is. And I think our opportunity going forward is to find trivial things to divide us so we can get back to work and making things better by making better things, at offering each other dignity and figuring out the real things we do agree on and emphasizing those so we can go back to making division just a hobby, not a matter of life and death. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with some questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. No ad this week. In fact, an ad about the ads. If you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a new button up there. Let me explain it to you really quick. My friends run akimbo.com, a B Corp that hosts the workshops that you've been hearing about here. But the Akimbo podcast is separate from that. And so going forward, every once in a while, I will talk about some of the workshops my friends are running. But in the meantime, I'd like to talk about what you're interested in. In fact, I'd like you to talk about what you're interested in. So if you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a way that you can upload a 30-second ad for a nonprofit, for a cause, or even for a hobby that you care about. Nothing commercial, please. Of course, I can't promise I'll be able to include all of them. There are guidelines at akimbo.link about how to do it and what to include and not include. The focus is 100% non-commercial and non-profit. I can't wait to see what you've got going on. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I do love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, please visit akimbo.link. That's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K and click the appropriate button. Three really juicy questions this week. Here we go. Hi, Seth. My name is Howard from Los Angeles. My question is about where the smallest viable audience meets people like us do things like this. How does one navigate between a relatively small audience that is like us and one that is more inclusive, less like us, or more like us in less obvious ways? Sometimes coining a phrase gives me a great deal of satisfaction, but sometimes it might be a little too short for its own good. People like us do things like this means something very specific and has absolutely nothing to do with what people look like or even what their income is or where they live. People like us is meta. It says, do you consider yourself people like us? People like us could be folks who are part of a mission, a journey, a sports team, a part of the culture. People like us. If you are an insider, how do you know? You know because you do things like this. 
So it is not an exclusive way of being in the world. It's inclusive because it's a choice to be people like us. So it's completely aligned with the smallest viable audience because the smallest viable audience says, I'm only here to serve people like us, people who do this, people who are showing up in the world in a certain way. And it is entirely possible that you, the marketer, the creator, the entrepreneur, whoever it is, isn't people like us. You're simply here to serve them. So you can run a dialysis center without having an illness in your kidney. But what you can do is establish a culture as to what thriving patients in your practice are like. What do they do? How often do they show up? What are the code words? What's the culture like? Because the definition of culture is people like us do things like this. And you get to figure out who the people like us are and what are the things like this. Because you are the leader. Hello, Seth. Jamalo from Castleman, Ontario, Canada. I wanted to start by saying thank you. Thank you for all you put out in the world, whether it's the books, the podcasts, or the blogs. All of them have had an impact in my life at the right time. Thank you so much. Quick question for you. Over the last couple of years, I really started reading a lot more, and I've accumulated a good number of books that I've read uh, and that have given me lessons. I know there's still a lot of lessons left in them. And so one of the questions I have is, how do you decide whether you go back and reread a book to try and gather more from that book or gain more, or invest into a new book where um, it may or may not have the quality and the lesson uh, that you hope to learn. How do you make that decision? Thank you. Thank you for this one. I own a Japanese saw. Actually, I own three, but that's too many. I own a Japanese pull saw. And what's interesting about it is the first time I got it, it was thrilling because it cut a different direction than I was used to. It cut smoothly and well. But I use it again and again. I don't have to buy a new one every single time I want to cut a piece of wood because it's a tool. That is really different from episode three of Extraordinary Attorney Wu. I'm never going to watch episode three again. Not because it wasn't good. It was really good. But it was only good the first time because watching it was about discovery, about experiencing something I had not experienced before. New facts, a new plot, new characters. It's the very freshness of it that makes it interesting. So you're probably guessing where I'm going here. Some books are tools. and Some books are there because they are fresh explorations of something you hadn't considered. So the books I read again and again, going all the way back to a book my mom read me when I was three years old. These are tools. These are books that are designed not to tell me something I didn't know already, but to reset my brain and understanding, to put me back to a spot I need to go so I can start digging deeper into something I already know I need to do. And as I get older, when I'm doing this work that I do, I find that the number of books I want to and need to reread goes up. Because going back to a tool, a tool I know how to use, that is a privilege. And so when I'm writing, I'm trying to write a tool. Generally, my last 20 books have all been tools. The first time you read it, I hope it turns on some lights from you. I hope that you hear something if it's an audio book or read something if it's in print that was new to you. But 
I'm most satisfied when people use them as a tool, coming back to them again and again to remind themselves of something that they already knew but needed to see fresh one more time. Hi, Seth. This is Diego Vaccaro from Argentina. Thanks for your insights, your thoughts, and all you do for the future of our world and the environment. I'm reading The Carbon Almanac, and it made me think very seriously about the future. I mean, my future, the future of my activity, and my impact on future generations. The thing is that I'm the owner of a company which imports and distributes auto parts for the Argentinian market. And on the other hand, I'm a person very concerned about the environment and the climate change. So that's a kind of contradiction. The question is, what should I do? Should I stop doing business by closing my company or maybe selling it to someone else? In this case, the risk is that the new person, the new owner, or maybe my competitors will take place of my position in the market are less concerned than me about the environment? Or should I continue doing business and trying to compensate uh, by planting trees, shifting to solar energy, and so on? All things that I have been doing, but I, I, I want to increase the compensations I'm doing. Uh, what do you think? I appreciate so much your opinion. Thank you. Thank you for this question. It's a really good one, and it gets to the heart of what I took away from organizing the Carbon Almanac, which is this. Carbon footprint, invented by Ogilvy and Mather for British Petroleum in the 1980s to make people feel guilty about their personal behavior so that they wouldn't speak up about systems problems because no one likes to be a hypocrite. Carbon footprint isn't really the problem. It is a symptom of the problem. The problem is the system around us. You are correct. If you sell your auto parts business, someone else is going to buy it. The number of auto parts sold isn't going to change. The question is, how are we going to change the system? And that begins with, which questions are we even asking? And you've already brought up a key point. As somebody who leads in your industry, you have the ability to ask questions more and more often. Then when we look at how Patagonia has shifted the way millions of people think about fast fashion, we see the power that industry can have. That what you can do is figure out how to speak up as a voice, as someone in the room, for alternative ways of transportation, for challenging and encouraging people to keep their beloved car in the garage and keep it shiny and new and maybe walk to work or take an electric bicycle. There are lots of ways we can change our culture, and every one of us, including me, is a hypocrite. We're not asking. We don't need to stop being hypocrites. What we need to do is speak up, organize, see the systems, and then work with other people to challenge them and change them. Too often we get short-sighted and ask, what will this do to my business in the short run? When the right question might be, what will this do to the place I live, to the culture I am part of, to the life I want to build? 
Thanks, everybody, for listening. There's a big problem that's changing everything about the world as we know it. Carbon and the impact of humans on the earth. We talk about it with words like climate change and global warming. But there's just two really important things that you need to know about it. First, this is an overwhelmingly big problem. So much so that it's likely that you feel as though your choices don't matter in the face of it. Second, that overwhelming feeling that I just mentioned, it's intentional. It was put there by design. The industries that make the biggest environmental impact have a vested interest in you feeling overwhelmed and powerless. They've marketed, lobbied, and schemed to create that feeling in all of us. In short, We've been lied to. But here's the good news. There's a lot you can do to make a difference. And the other good news is that there's still time. The Carbon Almanac is a book and project about these problems and what we can do to solve them. It was created and run by volunteers on the premise that it's not too late, but none of us can fix this problem on our own. We need each other. There are many ways to get involved, but simply learning more is a great start. Here are three steps you can take. First, go to thecarbonalmanac.org and sign up for the Daily Difference emails. They give you a short thought and a practical action that you can take alongside thousands of others every day. Second, get the Carbon Almanac book. It's full of facts, articles, graphs, and art. It's beautiful and fun to engage with. It's all footnoted and fact-checked. And importantly, it's made by volunteers whose only agenda is to solve these systemic issues. You can find it wherever books are sold. Finally, since you're listening to a podcast, search for the Carbon Almanac wherever you're listening. You'll find the Carbon Almanac podcast network and a few shows featuring expert insight, discussion, inspiration, and ways to take action. There's even a show just for kids. Do what appeals to you. Just do something. There's still time to make a huge difference in the future of the planet, but we can't solve this on our own. Join us.